was a good friend of mine. Hello and welcome to the Huntsman World Senior Games Active Life. My name is Kyle Case and I'll be your host on this amazing journey as we attempt to help you get the most out of your life. Today I'm flying solo as my co-pilot Lil Baron is out on assignment, but we are in the middle of April, about six weeks into our registration season. And so today I wanted to give just a very quick update on how registrations are going so far. And honestly, in one word, it's fantastic. Right now, we have well over 3,500 registered participants, which is actually ahead of last year's pace at this same time last year. And it's worth noting that we had a record-breaking year last year. So we're excited to see that happen and to see those registrations continue to come in. We're ahead of pace in so many sports, archery, badminton, basketball, cycling, golf, all of our shooting sports are ahead of pace, softball, square dance, and so much more. So that's as I said, very exciting to us. For you, if you have yet to register, let me emphasize that now is the time. We have our early bird registration fees in place, so you can save $40 by registering before August 1st. But also keep in mind that several of our sports do reach participation caps, so you won't want to delay. Make sure that you get yourself registered. You can get all the information that you need, as well as to go ahead and register today at SeniorGames.net. It's that easy. If you're over the age of 50, you're eligible. So hit up SeniorGames.net and choose from your favorite of 35 different sports. And then we will plan on seeing you in October. Our guest for today. Oh man, I am so excited. Dr. Jessica Payne holds appointments at Harvard Medical School and the University of Notre Dame, where she is currently a professor of neuroscience and psychology, as well as the director of Sleep, Stress, and Memory Lab. Dr. Payne's research focuses on how sleep and stress independently as well as interactively influences our memory, our creativity, our well-being, and our performance. Dr. Payne, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. No, we're excited to visit with you. I, I, I mentioned that I was so excited because honestly, I'm kind of in the middle of a sleep crisis myself right now. Uh-oh. I don't know why, but for the last several weeks, I am waking up like clockwork at 3 a.m. And then basically my night is over. Like I have just not been able to get back to sleep after that. But all of my personal issues aside, I do <laughs> I do want to dig into uh, to sleep and, and to get us started off. Tell us just from your research, how important is it that we get enough sleep at night? And then what is our brain actually doing while we're asleep? Well, it's incredibly important. It's important for every type of brain or cognitive function you can think of. It's also incredibly important for physical activity. I think it's very relative, relevant here. So the brain, you know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about it is that when you're asleep, your body and your brain aren't really doing anything except for resting, right? There's this idea that the brain is sort of switched off or maybe powered down like a computer while you're sleeping and nothing could be further from, from the truth. Your brain is extremely active while you're sleeping, particularly in a state called rapid eye movement sleep. And if you look at the specific areas of the brain where that activity is happening, It's regions like the hippocampus, which are critical for learning and memory, the amygdala, which is critical for emotion and emotional processing and emotion regulation. Um, So there's just this myth out there that, you know, sleep doesn't really do anything for you, except for maybe protect you from sleepiness. But I actually think it's one of the most powerful tools we have at our disposal if we want to increase performance. 
Awesome. And also that's horrible for me because like I said, I'm just, I'm not getting the kind of sleep that you've I got, like You've got the, the 3 a.m. the 3 a.m. screamies. You know, the reason, by the way, for that timing, people wake up right around there because while you spend the first half of the night in deep, slow wave sleep, yeah. you spend the majority of the second half of the night in rapid eye movement sleep. And as I just alluded to, REM sleep is a highly active brain state. Um, in fact, in parts of Europe, they call it paradoxical sleep because it looks, you know, if you're looking you're at the brain, wide awake. <laughs> it's like you're wide awake, but the person's sleeping, right? And so whenever you make that transition from slow wave sleep into REM rip sleep later in the night, you're, you kind of are riding on the cusp of wakefulness anyway. So okay. pretty typical to see most people arouse or wake up right around that time. Uh, it's also where you're going to wake all the way up if you're carrying around a lot of stress, uh, you know, which so many of us are. Right. If you know you have to go to the bathroom, it's probably right when it's going to happen. Sure. <laughs> if you have alcohol too close to bedtime, which is kind of interesting because while alcohol helps you fall asleep, it's actually uh, suppressing this rapid eye movement active state. So when you finally metabolize the alcohol, and you know, three or four hours later, and you release rapid eye movement sleep from inhibition. It just, you know, wakes the entire brain up. And so there are all sorts of reasons for that. It's actually called sleep maintenance insomnia that we can talk about a little later, but it's okay. actually very common. The, the best advice is to, you know, get, if, I mean, it's fine if you can lay in bed, just kind of relaxing, but if you start worrying or ruminating, the best thing to do is kind of get out of the bed, get out of your bedroom. If you can go do something else, relaxing in low light and then, and then don't, even try to go back to sleep until you're sleepy again. Okay. All right. That is actually very helpful. Thank you. I, you're welcome. I, I appreciate that. Um, because yeah, I mean, like I said, the last couple of weeks has just been like clockwork, like three o'clock I'm awake and man, it's just, it's frustrating me. So mm -hmm. uh, that's good. That's good. That's a good idea to get up and kind of move around a little bit and then uh, see if I can get back to sleep a little bit later. Right. Um, I, I do want to get into, you, you talked about how important sleep is and um, like I said, we've talked about that on the show. We know that it's crucial for so many reasons, uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, all the things that you mentioned, but what is the right amount of sleep? What should we be shooting for? Uh, it's a good question because most people would tell you eight hours, right? I'm not and one that's of them. The, that's, the common, that's the common answer, right? Yeah. And it's, it's a little, you know, it's not a bad thing to shoot for necessarily, but where that comes from is, is sleep, like so many human variables is normally distributed, right? And that's, if you think about the normal distribution or the bell curve, um, really where we get that number of eight is that the vast majority of people need somewhere between seven and nine hours. Okay. So eight, you know, it's not bad to shoot for, but it, it's an average. So it doesn't necessarily represent anyone. Um, but but again, because it's the normal or bell curve, anything that falls underneath that is considered normal. But if you're somebody who's, who thinks they only need four hours of sleep, um, all I can say is I've met a lot of people who think they're that person. You know, they think they're that Superman or Superwoman. Yeah. But usually when you get them into the laboratory, they're horribly sleep deprived. They're having micro sleeps left and right. Their performance is terrible. Um, so that's yeah. Quote normal, but it's so statistically rare that I haven't found one of them yet. Wow. And the same thing is true in the other direction as well. If you've got somebody who thinks they really need 12 hours and you ask them why they feel that way, they'll usually say, well, you know, I just sleep and I sleep and I sleep, but I never feel well rested. And that actually, again, is so statistically rare that instead it's much more likely that that person has undiagnosed sleep apnea, yeah, oh, which, okay. you know, those are, an apnea is a complete cessation of breath, a complete cessation of oxygen reaching the brain. And 
you have to literally wake up or arouse to get those breaths. And so if you look at the apnea patients EEG, instead of seeing nice, normal sleep, you just see awakening after awakening after awakening. It's not uncommon to have like over a hundred of those events in an hour or so in the worst cases. So what they're experiencing is they're not sleeping at all. At all. Yeah. It's fragmented. Yeah. And I always hope to save a couple of lives because we know now beyond any shadow of a doubt that there's a definite association between untreated sleep apnea and heart attack and stroke. So it's really something that, you know, I always like to say the minute, you know, your bed partner's really loud snoring uh, starts to turn into gasping, joke, choking. You know, you can tell they're kind of not breathing periodically. Then they're kind of waking up and turning over. It's time to go get a sleep study done just to make sure um, that that gets treated. I I knew that there was a a correlation between um, heart issues and apnea. Um, but you're saying that it's like incredibly strong, like, like there's no, there's no, there's not a question anymore. Like we know yeah, that's what's happening. Right. And it is a correlation. I mean, and as we know, correlation doesn't imply causation. Doesn't always mean cause. Yeah. But it is a pretty tight correlation. And that makes a lot of sense if you're having these, you know, failures of oxygenation happening during the night. Yeah. So um, it's something we really, really need to be talking about more and people need to be getting diagnosed with and it needs to be treated and then treated. Right. Yeah. That's the main thing. Mm-hmm. So you're saying we're shooting for roughly seven to nine. Most people. That's, yeah. that's going to work for most people. Everybody's a little bit different though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. So getting to know how much sleep you need is actually really important because most people in this, you know, sleep deprived, yeah, busy 24 seven society <laughs> will, you know, they, they don't have a sense anymore of how much sleep they really need. And, Usually I'll get answers like, well, I can get by on. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to think about when you're at your absolute best. Yeah. So figuring that out, I think is well worth it. No, for sure. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this. We're, we're For most people, we're looking for about seven to nine hours. Do they have to be consecutive? Do they have to be together? Or can you get like me, can, can you get three or four and then maybe pick up another couple at a later time? Mm-hmm. And you can, you can break sleep up. To a certain extent, um, the one rule is that it takes about 90 minutes to get through what we call an alternating cycle. So that's or a REM cycle. So you get through all the different sleep stages. And as long as you preserve those, you're pretty good to go as long as you're not trying, trying to flip your schedule. Right. Because then you get into circadian issues and, um, y- you know, there's a little dip in your circadian rhythm where I think you could also consider taking an afternoon nap, just a really brief afternoon nap and see if that helps as well. But you can do what you're talking about as long as you're not trying to flip the schedule and sleep during the day, which, you know, we know a lot of shift workers have to do, but it is right. not good for you for sure. Um, yet what I would recommend for you is exactly that, that, you know, you get the first three or four, get up for a while, do something relaxing that's not going to alert or arouse you in dim light and then try again a little bit later and try to catch another few. Yeah. So okay. you can break that up a little bit. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. That's, that's actually great. Now I, I want to ask two questions and I don't want to forget them. So, so let me go with the napping first. So um, you, you mentioned that it's okay to pick up a nap. Uh, is, is there a right amount of time for the nap? Like to, let's talk about napping just in general. What, what, what do we know about napping? Yeah. Well, so, and I mean, probably, I think if you interviewed 10 different sleep neuroscientists, we may have slightly different answers for you because <laughs> right. the data, you know, I think they're still a bit preliminary, but in my world, here's my opinion. You really want to keep naps in the afternoon. So napping too late in the evening can be problematic because it, so you, we think about the sleep debt that we carry around, which is what you accumulate when you're sleep deprived for long periods of time, which many of us are, but the sleep pressure that builds up naturally during the day is important because that's what helps you fall asleep at night. 
So if you nap too late in the day or too close to bedtime, you're going to be chipping away at some of that sleep pressure and then you won't be able to fall asleep as well at night. Yeah. Um, so keeping these in the afternoon, I think is the the safest way to make sure that doesn't happen. And then either keeping them really quite brief, you know, I used to, I usually say like 20 minutes or less. So okay. like when you start out setting your alarm for 20 minutes, um, some people can go a little longer than that as you sort of practice it and you get into a rhythm and a habit, people will sometimes sleep for a little more and they're fine. But in the beginning, <clears throat> keeping them short is important because a lot of us are carrying around this sleep debt which comes out in the form of slow wave activity. So they'll go right into slow wave sleep. The delta waves that define it are, you know, really super tall. And if you wake up after a you know period of sleep that's been really rich in that slow wave activity, you'll feel really groggy. So that's not going to help performance. So if you're napping for performance, which most people are, then you want to keep those naps pretty brief so that you don't run the risk of going into that. Again, as, and then as you practice, you'll sort of figure out what's right for you. But just to get started, it's either less than 20, you know, 20 minutes or less or 90 minutes. So if you're truly exhausted and let's say you finally get to a weekend, then you can go ahead and nap for 90 minutes because again, you're staying within that ultradian cycle and you're not likely to wake up out of slow wave sleep uh, in a, a manner that's going to make you feel as groggy. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to follow this line for just a minute. I do want to come back to my other question. Okay. Um, so you're saying, it sounds to me like you're saying if you're sleep deprived and I mean, many of us are, let's, let's be honest, probably mm -hmm. most of us are. Uh, I think a lot of us think, well, I know that. And I realize that, but I'm going to just catch up on the weekend. Right. Is, are, are you saying that we can do that or are you talking about something different? Well, so no, I don't truly think you can ever catch up on sleep, meaning that everything that your brain and body benefit from on a day-to-day -day basis isn't quite recoverable. So okay. what I study is the brain's ability to better consolidate memories, which is taking new things you learn and actually committing them to long-term storage and sometimes, you know, transforming them and restructuring in ways that can lead to creative insight. You're going to miss that. And it's the same thing with, you know, regulating your immune system, all the different things that sleep does for us. You can't really make it up, um, up you know, not in the, not, not in the way you're implying. However, if you're going through these inevitable times that I think we all have, or God forbid you have a teenager who has the deck stacked <laughs> against them because they have right. to go to school too early in the morning, which is against their, their chronotype, their, you know, chronobiology and their circadian rhythm. The best thing you can do is try to get some sleep back. So I wouldn't say you can't really make it up, but the best thing to do is to get as much sleep as you can um, to avoid the worst of it. So that's where strategic napping can be really beneficial, but it's not the same. I don't want you to think that it's the same thing, that it's an even wash. You know, if you yeah. aren't sleeping well at night, then you can just nap it away over the days, unless that ends up being your schedule. I mean, you know, in the siesta cultures, these are becoming more and more rare, but people will sleep around six hours at night and then they take another hour and a half nap in the afternoons. In the afternoon during their you know, quote unquote lunch break. So um, is it, is it fine or or advisable to nap every day or is it the kind of thing that you want to do only if you're tired what about that i would i think we never should have gotten rid of napping in kindergarten i really okay. i think that every corporation <laughs> rather than you know it being a fireable offense to fall asleep on the job i think we all ought to be able to put our heads down in our little cubicles maybe we can get little signs that say you know um, innovation napping. at work sleeping brain <laughs> you know sleeping brain at work innovation in progress or something like that and just give yourself a little reboot and a recharge. So I, I really think that, you know, even most people who say they're not good nappers, if they're laying down at the same time in the same place on most days, a lot of them will start to nap. 
But again, because those naps are brief, you're just going into these very, very light stages of sleep, like stage two. So people aren't even aware they've been asleep sometimes if it's yeah. you know, a really brief period of time. So I think if you can, if your schedule allows it, you know, I've worked with executives trying to get them to manifest a different culture and lead bravely and, you know, right. kind of practice what they are, you know, really needing and let their team members do that too. But I've helped executives figure out, you know, sneak out to your car for a lunch break, take a power nap out there, that sort of thing. I really think we should be doing it on a more regular basis. Okay. I, I like that. <laughs> I actually like that. Most of us anyway. That's not true for people who suffer for, from insomnia, by the way. It's not true for everybody, but okay. I think it's worth it for most people to give it a try. It's it's okay. really quite amazing how much energy that can restore. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, it's definitely something to think about and consider. I'm going to, I'm going to back up to my, my second question that I was going to talk about back to my three o'clock in the morning wake-ups. You mentioned do something kind of low energy, low light. I've heard a lot about cell phones and mm -hmm. sleep and disruption. It, would, would reading a book on my cell phone be a good idea or is that counterproductive to what I'm trying to do? It's counterproductive and it's okay. counterproductive for two reasons. So one is because even with the filters, it's not clear to me that it's blocking all the blue light. By the way, blue light is wonderful for your brain in the morning. I mean, one of the best things you can do is get out into the blue light first thing in the morning or even buy one of these you know blue light emitting devices. It's fantastic for your brain in the morning. Um, but it's really problematic at night because, again, it's counteracting the, the, the circadian rhythm. So I and, and there are two reasons. So that's one is that most of these devices you might read or watch something on are going to emit at least some of that. But it's also true that your cell phone. I mean, think about it. Our cell phones have just become their little computers and we do everything yeah. on them. And because of that, just due to the way the brain makes associations, when you pick it up, even if it's to read, you're still going to activate associations about work and about a whole bunch of things that might be potentially subtly stressful. And again, if you're trying to get to sleep, whether that's first thing at night or because you've woken up like you do, you want to keep your brain arousal levels low and stress levels very low. So I would really think it would be better to just pick up an old school book. Yeah. And, you know, don't use any devices at all. Maybe a Kindle's fine. You know, again, you have to, everybody's a little different here, but that I think for the, you know, for most people is the best advice is to don't, you know, use that as a screen free time if you can. Okay. And I, I like that. And that makes sense. But, but you're also saying, um, you know, you put your phone on dark mode, that's supposed to reduce the blue light. I know that there are glasses that are supposed to reduce the blue light, but you're saying the, the research doesn't really show that that's as effective as we think. It's unclear at this okay. point to me, but I think the other variable there is just as important, if not more so, yeah. is that these devices are so kind embedded in our lives yeah. that they can be a trigger because there are so many different associations you have with your laptop or your iPad or your cell phone. Yeah, for sure. And you don't want those. You really want sleep to be its own protected time where yeah. you're not introducing variables that are associated with your waking and work life, yeah, yeah. right? Or all waking your, in personal life. All of your emails that have to be answered then, right? Right, right. Um, so it should be protected. Yeah, I like that. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about long-term effects of not getting enough sleep. We, we, You, you mentioned um, that there are heart problems, heart attacks, uh, especially associated with um, sleep apnea. Um, what are we talking about long-term if we're not getting enough sleep? So that again, I mean, it's it's probably disappointing that I don't have a concrete answer. And I recognize there are plenty of sleep <laughs> scientists who would give them to you, but truly it's too early. It's just okay. too early. I mean, the 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 this this, I mean, so there is this kind of I think really interesting and potentially terrifying connection between sleep and dementia. 
but I think we still need time to confirm it. You know, it's to me, it's still just not confirmed. And to the extent that it is confirmed, it's just not clear to me how big of an effect it really is. Right. And how meaningful it's going to be in, you know, insofar as protecting yourself against dementia. Again, it's just, it's just a correlation you want. It's not ethical to do that study right? where you put one group of people in the sleep, chronically (laughs) sleep deprived, you know, group and see whether they are going to preferentially develop dementia. Yeah. I can see that being a little problematic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think there's a link there. I think there's a potential link there. And to me, it's just another reason though, um, to take care of your sleep and to make sure that you understand that I mean, I think the better for me, the better in the better way to get by it is to just show people the data about how much better their performance is if they're sleeping well. Yeah, and then that's going to protect them, right? In in the event there ends up being a super strong link between sleep and dementia or sleep right. and cancer, or any of these things. But the associations they can be there, but they can be very small. And one thing I try, I strive to do in my corporate practice, in the classroom, is to never you know, use fear techniques because it does exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to teach, which yeah, is you get stressed use. out, right? Yeah. Right. Responsible <laughs> use of science and yeah. And combating the high stress levels that, that lead to a lot of sleep disruption in the first place. Now, speaking of that, um, I've definitely heard of the link between sleep and dementia. And that, that, that has always concerned me because I've also got a genetic predisposition. Uh, both of my grandmothers had dementia. Um, so I appreciate your insight on that. The other one that I hear a lot about is um, if you're not getting enough sleep, you're generating cortisol and that's leading to weight gain. Mm-hmm. What do we know about that? that? There's a link there too. There definitely is, especially, you know, the kind of belly fat that we know cortisol <clears throat> is, is in part responsible for. But again, I mean, that's a, that's a definite link, but what it it's again, not clear to me how strong it is. So for instance, it, I don't, see very many people who are taking really good care of themselves, eating really well, exercising mm-hmm. religiously, who then have, you know, this obvious cortisol fat around their bellies if they're not sleeping as much. Yeah. Um, so I, again, it's a link. It's another reason to get your sleep, but the way the media pitches this stuff, it's just, it, to me, it's too much and too soon. Yeah. So there's, yes, it, there's a link there. It's another reason to protect your sleep to, right treat it if there's something going wrong to, you know, I don't know why we don't all have a kind of a bench, you know, like a baseline sleep study did when we're 25 years old. Seems uh, like that would be helpful, right? Well, right. I mean, when was the last time your <laughs> primary care physician asked you how you were sleeping, right? I mean, it's such a barometer of mental and physical health and it we're not even asked about it. So because of, but the point here is that sleep research is really in its infancy still. And I don't like to, you know, take preliminary results, even if they're interesting, and treat them like they're scientific facts, yeah. especially when I know they're going to scare everybody, which is going to lead to more stress, which is going to lead to poorer sleep. <laughs> so what I'm saying is I do think that there are linkages there and they're meaningful. I think they're best used as motivators to protect your sleep and treat it with respect and don't buy into this. I'll sleep and I'm dead culture. Yeah. It will probably get you dead faster. <laughs> you know, For sure. Um, For sure. But, you know. Sometimes I worry a little bit about the wellness movement. It's sort of like all this wellness might kill me. This, you know, worrying about not doing everything perfectly. And it's always so contradictory as well. That's what makes it so hard. But, uh, but yeah, I I appreciate your insights and uh, and your thoughts about that because it's very easy to buy into that one thing, your pet thing that is that is your thing, you know. Right. And um, I I like your positive approach rather than your fear based or your negative approach. We're just about out of time. But if people wanted to learn more about your research. And the things that you're finding about sleep, where would they find that information? 
Uh, well, so there's my Notre Dame website, the lab website, but probably the best place to find me um, is my personal website. That's jessicadpain.com. And in case it's of interest to anybody, I'm also developing a new digital course focused on increasing leadership effectiveness, uh, general performance and brain function by tapping into the power of sleep and stress management. So if you wanted to get early access when it launches, you could sign up at jessicadpain.com forward slash course. Okay. And I'd be happy to share some information. You can also get a free cheat sheet on my top three sleep tips, which I mean, I think everybody could benefit. <laughs> we all need them. Dr. Payne, thank you so much. We appreciate your input and your insights once again and your expertise. And uh, we wish you all the best in your research and all the things that you're working on. Well, likewise, I hope you can get over the 3 a.m. screen. Oh, so do so I. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, thank you very much. Hey, just, uh, just a few quick reminders as we're wrapping up the show here. I said it at the beginning of the program, but I just want to remind you that now is the time to get registered for the Huntsman World Senior Games. We have schedules, rules, frequently asked questions, all of that available at seniorgames.net. Be sure to take full advantage of our early bird pricing, which is in effect until August 1st as well. And remember to tune in live next and every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on AM 1450 or FM 93.1 for the Huntsman World Senior Games Active Life. We take this live show and turn it into a podcast, and you can subscribe pretty much anywhere that podcasts are found. You can also find this as well as previous shows right on our website. Once again, that is seniorgames.net, so check that out. Today's inspirational thought comes from the American Film filmmaker Sam Levinson and he says just try to be happy unhappiness starts with wanting to be happier until next Thursday stay active stay active